Hey guys, it's Tats here from Castagra, and welcome to the Specified Growth Podcast. Each week, I talk to leaders and experts about how to overcome adversity, grow massive organizations, and how to create meaningful change in the building materials and codings industry. Today's guest is Mitch Russo. He's built numerous eight-figure companies. He's a best-selling author, and he's the host of the business podcast, Your First Thousand Clients. So Mitch, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, Tats. Great to see you. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. So, I mean, you've done a lot of entrepreneurial stuff. How did that all start? Yeah, well, I mean, you told me before we only had 35 minutes. It would take me that long just to tell you how this whole <laughs> Give started. Give me the highlights. Give me the highlights. Okay, so the highlights were that I was a scrawny kid in high school and couldn't pick up girls. So I started a band. Oh. And uh, it turned out that was the greatest thing I could ever do. I started getting dates and girlfriends and all that stuff. And later applied a lot of what came very natural to me and decided to build a business out of the band. So as a kid, we did things that, you know, most kids would probably not think of, or maybe for me anyway, it was kind of intuitive. You know, I would hang posters in the supermarket or I would walk around with a clipboard. And then anytime we played a gig, I would get a written testimonial. Later, I found out that I could send announcements to the local newspaper and have them print them. Mm. It was shocking to me as a kid <laughs> that, you know, you could have that kind of, wow, it's like I have a direct line into the newspapers. Wow. <laughs> and, and so I learned a lot of stuff, frankly, that were the primary and core lessons I needed as an entrepreneur. I learned about publicity. I learned about promotion. I learned about price testing. We started playing mm. for $50 a night. Yeah. You know, the whole band, we'd get, find our way to, to rent a car with a, and have a driver and we were too young to drive. Sure. And, and then later, by nine months later, we were charging 500 a night. Wow. And, and remember, now this goes back into the 1970s. So that was a lot of money back then. Yeah. So you cover stuff. And then, and then later in life, I didn't think college was for me. I wasn't sure. I tried a few times different schools, but my true passion was not really business. It was electronics. Mm. I won most science fairs as, ki- as a kid. I was an introvert, so science appealed to me. And for some reason, I decided to go to school to learn how to fix color television sets. And, and I remember taking this one class, digital electronics course. And this, again, is in the 1970s. And we were all confused as kids. We went, well, why would we be taking a digital electronics course? Everyone knows that there's nothing inside of a TV but tubes. <laughs> but the professor was adamant about it. And by the time we graduated, that professor had personally tutored me basically almost exclusively because he saw some aptitude and then later told me the week I was supposed to graduate, he said, you'll never fix a color television set in your entire life. <laughs> and he was right. Yeah. I got an offer to entered the computer business, which I did. Yeah. And I uh, joined a computer company and then made my way up through there. And eventually I became a field applications engineer for a semiconductor company, got jealous of all the sales guys when we were making all that money. <laughs> so I went into sales. And then from sales, it was very interesting from sales, I started to make really very, very, very big money for a young, for a young guy. Uh, 28 years old, I was 
my commission checks were 34,000 a month. Wow. So that back then even was a lot of money. It's a lot of money today. Yeah. But here's the interesting thing. When the recession back then hit, my peers said, well, you know, we've been through this before. You just tough it out three, four years from now, it'll all come back. And I said, screw that. I don't have three and four years. <laughs> I decided to start a company. And nice. that's when I started Time Slips Corporation. And Time Slips Corporation was a company that I started with a neighbor in my garage or over my garage with $5,000. Yeah. And all those lessons starting a rock band started to come back and pay off big time. And I'll fast forward to the end of the story. Sure. Uh, nine years later, we had over 100 employees. We were the number one product in our field, which was legal time and billing. Yeah. And we were bought by Sage for eight figures, which basically set me up for life financially. Yeah. And then from there, all of my decision points changed because at that point I stopped really worrying, quote unquote, about money and started focusing entirely on what really lights my fire. What do I really want to do with my life? And like many people who go through this process, and many have, yeah, we all sort of come to the same place, which is how can we help others? How can we help other entrepreneurs get to where mm -hmm. we've been? And more importantly, sure. what are the high quality lessons that we learned that will be of value to other people. And, yeah. and that to me is what my journey is about today. Yeah, that makes sense. And then I guess once you sold your company, you work with Tony right after? Or how did that, that all happen? Tony and Chet, by the way. Sure. So what ended up happening is that uh, while I was building my software company, people would come at us all the time trying to sell us stuff. And sure. there was this one guy who was incredibly persistent. His name was Chet Holmes. And Chet was trying to sell me advertising space in a legal publication. And logically so, it should have been, uh, I was a good prospect. In fact, it turns out if you know Chet's work, I was one of his Dream 100 clients, mm, if you will. Yes, yes. And so the bottom line was that he was targeted me. I thought he was kind of a caricature, a joke in a sense, because he was just that persistent. It was like, really? Can this guy be for real? <laughs> And he worked on me for over a year. And he would fly out here from California to visit yeah. Boston and take me to dinner. And it turned out that I ended up negotiating a ridiculous deal. I'd never thought he took it. He would take it, but he did. I negotiated a double page, full yeah. color spread in yeah. the magazine for the yeah. price of a single black and white ad. Wow. And he... He said yes. And I, at that point, said, look, I don't think I can get any better than that. I said yes. <laughs> and it turned out to have an enormous impact on the company. Wow. And so we increased our ad budget in his magazine, which grew and grew. And we ended up becoming best of friends. Yeah. So in about 1989 or so, friendship began. And later in life, I mean, after, even after I sold the company, we stayed friends, yeah. best of friends. And we got involved in each other's families and family events and yeah. all these great things. And eventually he said to me one day, he goes, look, I'm having a problem. He asked me for some help. I stepped in to assist him. And next thing you know, I'm, I'm working with him at his company, in effect, as an as a independent contractor. Yeah. Later, he asked if I would come aboard and run the company as the president. And I said, I, I would. Shortly after that, he and I began negotiating with Tony Robbins. The three of us 
would get on a phone call every Thursday night. I was on the East Coast, Tony and Chet were on the West Coast. So my call didn't start till 11, sometimes midnight. And we would go for two, three hours trying to figure out the business model, trying to come up with ways to, to make this a triple win for all of us. Yeah. Until finally we said, you know what? Let's do it. And we built the company and we launched it. It turned out we launched it after deciding to do it six weeks later. We found a way to bring 500 people into a, into a ballroom in Las Vegas. And that's how we launched the business, the ultimate business mastery summit. Wow. That's awesome. And that was the beginning. That was the beginning. That's how the whole thing started. Wow. That's, uh, that's amazing. I know I ran across uh, Chet's work. Microsoft used to have this kind of digital library of speakers like way back. Mm-hmm. And uh, I ran across uh, Chet's presentation. I think this is before he had his book. And he was pretty compelling. And I think he's been un- underappreciated. And he had the, I think he passed away too soon. Me too. But I think a lot of what he's done is he's underrated quite a bit yep. for what he's uh, done. So, yep. Agreed. Agreed. He, he was, he had pioneered some stuff and Chet was, he had a natural, like almost a knack for using language in a persuasive way. And he would name things and have names for things that really set them apart. Mm. In some of the cases from, from what other people were doing entirely, even though in some ways they were very similar. Yeah. But he would use his, these monikers and describe them in a way that just made everything super, super compelling. And Really? Give me an example. Well, the stadium pitch yeah. concept, the whole st- that was in Chet's book, the stadium pitch. For those who don't know it, are, the idea would be if I were able to put all of your ideal prospects into a stadium and put you on stage and you could say anything you wanted, but here's the catch. Anyone can leave anytime they want. Mm. How do you get the most people to stay who are potentially customers for your product? And he just took that example and turned it into a lesson and a way to explain how to use persuasive language. And more importantly, how to tune into what people truly want. And that's where he coined the term education-based marketing where he said that it's much better to educate than to sell. Of course, people probably knew that for years, but no one ever really quite said it that way. And, and he and I and the rest of the company really were quite loyal to that concept and that everything we did was education-based. Wow. Now, I mean, you, you wrote a book about, I guess, am I saying it correctly, creating a virtual organization. How did that all come about? What happened was that after Chet passed away, yep. I felt like I needed to stop and take a breather. And, and so I called Tony and I said to him, I, I, I'm going to be resigning. I hope you understand that I would stay on if you want me to, but I don't think at this point I'm going to be of good to anybody for the next three to six months. I just need a break. So I did that. I took that break. And then I came back and I said, okay, now what am I going to do next? And so I, I started to speak to some of the people in my world who I considered friends and I think considered me friends and asked them what they thought of me and what my capabilities were. Mm-hmm. And one of those people was a guy named Jay Abraham. And so yes. I called Jay and I said, Jay, what do I do? I mean, I, uh, I just got done with this whole 
thing. It was five years of pouring my life into this thing and taking it from not quite zero, but almost zero to almost 30 million in revenue. And he said to me, Mitch, the one thing I could tell you, I don't know what you should do, but you can't let what you know go to waste. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, what do you mean? He goes, well, you have to find a way to teach others what you just did, because it's kind of unusual and even a little bit extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, how would I do that? He goes, I don't know. I'm just telling you what my feeling is. And so I hung up on that call a little bit confused, a little bit inspired, a little bit intrigued, and a lot challenged by Jay Abraham. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so I thought about it and I started to write down things I knew. I figured I might as well figure out what it is he thinks I know that I <laughs> don't quite understand myself. But I, I did. I started writing these things down and, and went through the long winding process of, of writing a book. And so once I figured out what the meaning of the book was and the purpose of the book was, the name Invisible Organization showed up in my world. And I wow. grabbed it. I grabbed the URL. And at that point, the book came together very fast once I realized what it was truly about. And what it really is, is it's a blueprint of how I built a 300 plus organization completely virtually. Mm. But it wasn't so much that, you know, like, okay, I use this piece of software to do this thing. Yeah, there's, that's in it. But it was two elements that I think made it much different. Mm-hmm. Number one was understanding the mindset of a person running a virtual organization, which is, to me, all about what success and failure is for that type of a company. Yeah. And then that, that was a challenge because the mindset to me came very naturally because that was my mindset, but sure. I didn't realize it wasn't other people. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So what I decided to do is interview some folks and figure it out. And I, I felt like I had put together a blueprint of what that mindset should look like. Sure. The next thing was, yeah, we talked about the process itself, how to go virtual. And then I realized that we actually had some superpowers that other companies didn't have because we were virtual. For example, we were able to scale a sales organization in hours, days, compared to others who would spend six, seven, eight weeks trying to hire just a small group of people. Yeah. So we talked about the hiring process. We talked about the marketing process. We talked about how do you promote a virtual organization in a, in a digital world and all that. Now, admittedly, a lot of this stuff is now kind of common knowledge and people do it all the time at some level. But back then, it was kind of innovative. I mean, the book today has value from the standpoint of, like I said before, the mindset of the CEO mm. and also understanding what is possible once you go virtual. We saved Tony a million dollars in rent just by helping him understand how to consolidate the organization the way, the way eventually he did. And so the book was great at the time. It gave me a focus. It gave me something to do. And it brought a couple of clients in, which was nice secondarily. But for the most part, it was also my very first book. So it established me as a writer. And, and I, I liked the feeling of, of having written the book and being a writer. It wasn't until three years later that I released my second book. And the reason I released my second book was because I had perfected a process of building certification mm-hmm. that I've never quite seen anywhere else. And Chet taught me many years ago that it's best to... Knowledge is free, basically. You share your knowledge and what you charge for is implementation. And he proved it to me over and over again. And so I said, you know what? 
thank you, buddy. I'm going to take your lesson here and I'm going to pour everything I know into my book, Power Tribes. And sure enough, it's worked. It's brought me clients. I work right now with companies just finished one certification program, working on now another client certification program. And they're incredibly fun to do. I love being the the band leader and, and orchestrating this whole process. And then watching that moment in time when we finally launched the program and then hundreds of thousands of dollars pour in the door. I mean, I have had the reaction of owners just break down and cry and thank me for everything. <laughs> so it's a, for people that don't know, what's the certification process? Well, first of all, let's identify what is certification. So sure. most people know certification as having heard of things like Infusionsoft certification yes. partners yes. or Intuit certified advisor program. This is when a company goes and tests some of their best customers and then says, okay, you're smart enough. You seem to have understood everything enough. You can now help others implement our solution, whether it's a software or a system type solution. Yeah. Well, what I discovered is that by itself, that's not enough. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that without a culture, certification turns into entropy. It completely self-destructs. And that's because if you put any group of people together, the personalities of that group are going to define the direction of the group as opposed to the group founder who has to define the direction of the group. So what I did is I created a 38-point culture code and I created an entire map for building culture inside of a paid community like a certified partners organization. And this, by the way, is how Intuit built theirs. I taught the CEO of Intuit how to create certification back in the early days. His name was Scott Cook. I think he's on the board, but he was the founder of Intuit many years ago. And Scott and I were friends. He said, hey, what's all this certification stuff? Can you share that with me? And I I did freely. He was a friend. And later he paid me back many times over by giving me access to the code base, which I never would have had access to, so that we could link up time slips and QuickBooks together. Very cool. That's awesome. You talked about the mindset of a company running a a virtual organization. Like That's a hot topic right now. What is the mindset for someone that is a bit more brick and uh, mortar? Well, I mean, if you think about the way many people manage people, how do you manage a group? Well, in the 80s and 90s, people of that generation were taught a phrase that has an acronym MBWA, Management by Walking Around. Mm. And what that meant is you got up out of your chair, you lazy bones, and you walked your facility two or three times a day. And whether it's a manufacturing facility or whether it's a telemarketing organization, you just walk through your organization and you're paying attention. You're not on your phone. You're not texting. You're not talking to somebody else who's walking you through. You walk around and you pay attention. And what people have found in the prior years is that this was very effective. Number one, it showed your staff members that you care. gave you a real feel for what's going on in the organization. Being the CEO or the president, the vice president, you could listen in on anything you want and offer your opinion, hopefully to improve the situation. So those types of people are a little bit scared about maybe relinquishing all that control. So when I talk about mindset, what I'm trying to explain today is that the average CEO doesn't communicate enough to his people. 
That, so that's an important element here. You need to understand that if you really want to run a team virtually, you have to be in pretty much constant communication. Now, today we have tools we didn't have back then. We have things like Slack. Yeah. Now, and the reason I say Slack and not Zoom, because, well, Zoom is ubiquitous at this point, but what Slack does is it gives people a place to, quote unquote, hang out, an open channel, if you will. And it's a little bit, I mean, we use Microsoft Teams as well in the same way. But for the most part, a product like that, whether it be Teams or Slack, allows the CEO to be able to monitor what's going on in these rooms. The other thing is, is that we have call center software, a virtual call center software that, again, many years ago, we never had. And that kind of software gives us the chance to literally listen in or watch as people complete their calls. We have other more invasive tools, which I haven't used, but I know people do, where you know, if you send people home, they download a bundle of software that mm. monitors their keystrokes and takes snapshots of their screen as they go throughout the day. And in fact, some of them take snapshots off of their webcam so they can see them whether they're at their desk or not. And, and others have monitoring software that watches the webcam for movement. And if movement stops, then it calls attention to a manager who says, hey, we're paying Joe to be at his desk and working and our systems detected that no one's been at that desk for the last 20 minutes or something. So there's lots and lots of systems and that's where mindset comes in. Turns out that without a lot of those super invasive things, you don't need them really. You can actually do a much better job of managing people than you could ever by walking around. That's for sure. Okay. So basically communicating often. Now, what, uh, what role does hiring the right mindset for, like, for a person, like, you know, like a self-starter, play in uh, a remote culture? Well, there's many different positions that potentially you would hire for. I'll talk first about salespeople because I think sure. salespeople are, in some ways, the easiest to motivate and the easiest to hire if you know how. So the one thing I love about hiring and motivating salespeople is that for the most part, they're motivated by money. They have less interest in prestige. They have less interest in title or position. They really just want to be paid as much money as they could possibly be paid. Sure. And, and that's great because you want them to make the most possible money that they can. And if, you're, if you set up your commission programs properly, where and, and this might be a little unintuitive for many sales executives, where they actually make more money, the better they sell, you'll keep them for a long time and they'll do really, really well and they'll do well for the company. They also transition well into management if they understand the mentality of management. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that again is a mindset issue. Management has to understand that it's okay for some of their salespeople to make more than the CEO. Mm -hmm. And the reason is, is because frankly, they're driving uh, revenue. They're driving top line revenue. So they deserve that money. And it, if everybody's making more than the CEO, then your pay plan is completely wrong. Ideally, it should be about 4 to 10% of the, of the sales population are making top dollar. So my perspective has always been pay salespeople the best you possibly can and get the highest performance people possible. And, and that's very much a mindset issue as well. The other thing is, is that we used personality tests extensively to determine whether someone has the ability to work independently. Mm. 
and has the capacity to do different types of tasks. So that became a major tool in our tool chests about how to judge folks before we, in fact, many of the people we hired, we never even met once. <laughs> but we knew for certain that they would be good at their job. And, and I would say that those tests are much more effective than people give them credit for. Mm. Which ones are you referring to? Well, I mean, we use a family of tests from a company called selfmanagement.com. Okay. And what we found is that the tests are so accurate that even if your own gut feeling says, you know what, I really like this person, the test said he won't do well, but I really, really like him. I really think he'd be great. I'm going to hire him anyway. Nine out of nine times I've done that, the test was right. So you got to respect the process and the tools that you use because that's kind of what's going on. Yeah. Those are the types of things that really pay off. So yeah, that, that's another thing. You know, once you start to depend on tools, it doesn't mean you stop looking to up-level them, but you, you depend on them and you make them work for you. That's the most important thing. That makes sense. You talk about salespeople. I think you've, you've done a lot of recruiting sort of mass sales organizations. Any tips for our listeners there? To recruit or to be recruited? To recruit. To, I mean, I think people are always trying to grow their top line. How do you attract the best salespeople to, to come with you? What sort of campaigns, what sort of things? I mean, you talked about your certification culture as a, a sales driver. What other things can someone do to, to grow their sales network or team? Well, first of all, it starts with who you hire. And what it always comes down to, I don't want to make it sound so simple that it's not accurate, but there is a simplicity to this. If you look at somebody's past performance mm -hmm. and you then apply what I would call a personality analysis, mm -hmm. you'll have a fairly clear picture as to where you can take that person. So what I mean, I'll give you an example of what I mean by personality analysis. Sure. We had a woman who worked in our organization who was a very high performer. Yes. The problem was is that she was getting sick every four to six weeks. Oh. And so what we understood and what we came to understand about her is that her high performance came at a cost. Mm. She was brute forcing it and kept her performance very high, but it wasn't a natural element of who she was or how she did things. Ah. And as a result, she got sick a lot. And her getting sick a lot was, was kind of the, the clue, if you will, that, that yeah. tipped us off as that there was something wrong. And, and so, you know, what we tried to do is we tried to see if we could place her in a position that would help her not be as sick as she was and at the same time optimize the environment as well so that we could take advantage of her strengths sure. without taxing her health. And it took a little bit of doing, but it took a, the effort to understand her better and it, was, and it paid off. She did great in the job that she eventually was in. So it's important to understand what the nature of your, of your people are and personality testing kind of does that. And again, it's, it, it sounds simple, but a lot of what we discovered in personality testing is that the clues lied in childhood. So mm. once we asked the right questions about a person's childhood, we were able to pretty much tell with not 100%, but fairly good odds whether they would be high performers. But other elements of the test would detect that too. So 
that's where it turns out we did our best work. Mm, that makes sense. So what sort of stuff are you doing now? Like what's, what's the future look like? Well, as you know, I have a award-winning podcast syndicated with C-Suite Network. It's called Your First Thousand Clients. Um, I'm approaching interview, publishing interview number 200 in the next week or so, wow. a couple of weeks. And so I've really focused on finding incredible entrepreneurs who have made it. And so that's been really, really good. And I've used my podcast to position my guests as ideal clients. So if I interview wow. somebody on my show, odds are there's someone I would target as an ideal client for me. Most people are able to increase revenue by 30 to 40% by the end of the second month and grow from there. Yeah. And then for the most part, it's their choice whether they want to stay in the accelerator and continue for a second term. But for many people, I'm done. My job is over at that point. The second thing that I do is I build, as I said, certification programs. And so I feel like I'm always enjoying that type of work because number one, it's very involved. I work very closely with the founders of the company and we're together for a long time getting this thing built and launched. And so for me, it's been a joy to work there. And then I've, been, I've, uh, I've also been creating a lot of new products too. So I have some new stuff coming in the, down the pike pretty soon. I've always been a software developer. So I have a new piece of software coming out in a couple of months just for coaches. It's specifically for coaches and and mental health professionals that will help them with their clients. And so some exciting stuff happening in my world. Oh, very cool. Now, is there anything that I didn't ask, but should have? Well, I'll mention that when I'm not involved in business and entrepreneurship, my passion is photography. Ooh. I've been an international photographer, landscape photographer, all of my life. And you, anyone could go to see my work at MitchRussoTravels.com. Nice. And that for me is really, if I had the ability and the stamina to do nothing but travel and, <laughs> and we in the middle of a pandemic, that's where you'd find me. I, I already take, under normal circumstances, at least four trips a year. The trip I took right before shutdown was to, where was I? I was in Asia for two weeks and Myanmar. I was in Myanmar and had an amazing trip. The pictures for Myanmar are on my website as well. But I also had to cancel two trips when all of this happened in March. So I also take a small group of photographers with me to Iceland just about every year. And so I had a couple of disappointed people. We had to cancel our Iceland, our Iceland trip. And I had other trips planned that got canceled as well. I love the entire experience. I love even the 16 to 19 hour flights. <laughs> I know it sounds crazy, but I just love them. And I, some flights, I could get on the plane with my laptop and leave with a new book or a new program. Or... I could watch binge watch 19 movies or something, but I just enjoy that. I don't know what it is, that isolation. And I, yeah. and, and I will say that, yeah, I, am, I, I do get to fly business class because I earned it and I love the isolation of that as well. So if I need to sleep, I can sleep and I arrive fresh and ready to go. And that to me is a big advantage. Mm, very good. Well, Mitch, I learned a lot. Definitely. Uh... I love your story and uh, thanks for taking the time. My pleasure, Tats. Thanks for interviewing me. 
I want to thank everyone for listening to Specify today. Also, want to thank the listeners who are working hard each day to change the world to make it a better place. If you know anyone, anyone that would benefit from this episode, please pass it along. And finally, make sure you subscribe to hear upcoming episodes. Talk to you soon. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.